0: Tessman, Heath Tessman, now he offloads, he gets the arm free and this time Fergus Lee Warner. The fullback puts it on the toe looking for Placid, Placid with the ears, pin back, Placid, how's the bounce, it's good and they're over. Must be very close, the cavalry arrive to support him, they drive him over and the tries are watered. Short ball to Deegan, spots the half gap, now he uploads to Kitty Ratu, pops it over the top to McGregor, and McGregor oh, nice dives try. to score the try. Lace up your boots and grab your mouthguards, it's time for the Rugby Wrap, the podcast about all things Western Force, global rapid rugby, and the game we love. Well hello everyone, thanks again for tuning in to the Rugby Wrap, nice to have your company, and there continues to be plenty happening in the world of rugby despite no matches being played, and we're about to get into that right now. My name's Mick Collison. Joining me, as always, is former Wallaby, Mitch Hardy. Mitch, good to see you.
1: Nice to be back again for the Rugby Wrap, Mick.
0: It's good to be here. And a man who won the Easter Egg Hunt at his house. In fact, he remains undefeated, Pete
2: Tessman. Yeah, two years straight now. Very proud, though. Um, little Grace is, is starting to develop a nose for it. <laughs> so um, next year, I'll have my work cut out for me. Well, as I said, there's plenty
0: happening off the field at the moment, and there's plenty of people quick to give their opinions. But One man whose opinion carries more weight than most is former Wallaby captain Nick Farr-Jones. And Nick, thanks for your time on the
3: Rugby Wrap. Nick and and friends, I'm more than happy to be here. Um, I'm not quick to give my opinion, but occasionally I do give my opinion. I try to give it strongly.
0: All right. Well, we look forward to hearing that over the next half hour or so. Now, Nick, it seems like the code in Australia, it's broke. Registered player numbers are down. Wallabies were ranked behind Japan. Our Super Rugby teams don't look like winning the title anytime soon. How did we get to this?
3: Mick, just to quickly, I, I suppose, put you guys and your your viewers in, in perspective. I mean, I, I was chairman of New South Wales Rugby for a period of about five years, from uh, maybe about 2011 to 2015. I stood down in leading into the World Cup in 2015. Um, I tried as hard as I could as chairman of New South Wales Rugby to to put some perspective to try and speak to to task to Super Rugby, most importantly to the Australian Rugby Union, as it was then. Um, give them perspective in, as regards the importance of the community game and the need to invest in the community game and not just focus at the top of the pyramid. Um, when I stood down in September 2015, I basically did two things. Um, I had a two-hour lunch with Cameron Klein in London the week leading into the Rugby World Cup final, to try and give him my download. He was the incoming chairman of, of Australian Rugby Union, uh, replacing Michael Hawker at the end of the year. I, I thought we had a very positive two-hour lunch. I tried to tell him what was you know high on my priority list and what he should focus on for the goodwill of the game. And the second thing I did, I suppose, around then was because I'd beat my head against the wall of, of the ARU at St. Leonard's. Um, with people like Kerry Chikoroski trying to push, you know, the, the the women's story and the importance of that. And remember that was before we won a gold medal at the Olympics, which all of a sudden changed that scenario, but just trying to push community rugby. Um, I basically decided that, you know, I didn't achieve what I wanted to as chairman of New South Wales rugby. So I decided that the only way that I was going to get a passion back for the game was to effectively cut the umbilical cord. And Get away from the game and just distance myself. So when I talk to you guys tonight about, um, you know, my thoughts on rugby, remember, I have been quite distant to it intentionally because I need to, because I want to become passionate about it again. And to become passionate about it again, I need to know that we're going in the right direction. Um, And so I've just been involved in the last couple of weeks on a few discussions with a few people about getting us back in that right direction.
0: So why do you think your suggestions were falling on deaf ears?
3: I have no idea. I I I think that we've made some major errors when the game went professional. When you look at the number of people that are employed by the game, um, the number of people at super rugby, I mean, you know, I think we've got about 130, 140 employees at Rugby Australia. I mean, I don't want to go through some of the roles, but it's ridiculous. You know, we we won the World Cup. I was lucky enough and privileged enough to captain a team in 91. They won a World Cup. Um, We had one assistant coach, I think a doctor and a physio. Uh, I think Rugby Australia back then had five um, professional people. Now, I, I understand it was an amateur game then. I understand the need of the professional game, but I think rugby league in Australia has just been exposed by Channel 9 for this just over lavish, um, basically, you know, administrative um, process that just wastes money and spends too much money. I think that that's how the bottom line is, Mick. I think that chief executives justify their, you know, their, their elevated wages by saying that 120 people effectively report to them. It's ridiculous. I think you could run Rugby Australia with 40 people. You could streamline it, you could have, you could have base case wages, retainers, and you could have KPIs. I think the only good thing that's gonna come out of this coronavirus stuff that we're going through, and you know, here we are speaking distantly and what have you, is that we are gonna get lean management. And it's what you need. And and super rugby doesn't need chief executives. Super rugby needs just general managers. Look, look at what their schedules and their season involves. We don't need 15 people wrapped around teams. This will be the good outcome that we get from this strange, interesting, unusual and, um, you know, damaging times that we're experiencing at the moment we will get change we'll get change right through sports we need change at rugby there's absolutely no doubt it's been very very poorly managed well before this virus period um i'll throw back to you to ask a question i mean i I can talk about whole aspects of trying to raise money for rugby to keep it afloat what we should do next
0: so just going from that Teeth, you're involved in that professional game at the moment mitch you've been in that professional environment and now heavily involved with club rugby Mitch, I'll start with you do you think that there was too many people involved at that level and Heath if you can say if you think there still is or or whether you like having that many people involved so Mitch if you can go first yeah certainly um during my time
1: as administrator in professional rugby Mick there was it was starting to go towards that way I mean You know, you go back to the days where Western Force first started off and you had (coughs) David Nusafora who was the main central point of contact, and the Wallaby Head Coach, you had two points of contact. John O'Neill was running the corporate executive side of things. Um, They had one person looking after Sansa, and it was really one point of contact for each business unit, if you like, um, within the organisation. And then, you know, Western Force, I think, had a probably an overpopulated staffing structure initially when it went to set up, but then it started to pull that back and get a bit lean once the money started started getting a little bit tighter, um, and now it's pretty much working off a real skeletal structure, and it seems to be working pretty well. And Heath could probably comment on that, but but certainly I agree with Nick's comments that we're probably a little bit too top heavy on the administration executive front at the moment. And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a game of rugby. We're trying to to get out there and run and, and clubs can be empowered as well to, to do a lot of work for for not much at all because we, we, we do rely on, as a game, a big strong volunteer base right across the country. So um, it's sort of an untapped workforce that's not of, often recognised in appropriate ways. And it'd you know, be interesting to hear Nick's thoughts maybe down the track during the show about how we can empower club rugby to do more while we get rid of the top heavy stuff. Keith.
2: Yeah, I, I do agree a bit there with you, Mitch. With the um, with the guys at the top, like uh, like the the number of the officers at the top, um, just with job justification, like uh, how much they're actually doing. But the balance in the professional game as well comes in. It's almost like a monster that it feeds itself. Like with the social side of it, the advertising side of it, so many different sides of it. Like they get success, we can make money off those sides. So what a lot of teams do is then stack more employees into it to put more resources into it to then try and build more money off it, off the back of that as well. And I think, I think that that probably snowballed through a really good period through the, um, probably the late nineties, early 2000s, obviously all centered around that world cup. But then as, as like you touched on Mitch with the leaner years coming through, I don't know many, many of the other teams we definitely had it at the Western force. And it was probably, it was, partly just through necessity to survive, but we've been able to manage. We've been kind of leaning up like you use that terminology for, for quite some time. And um, I think it probably put us in a, maybe a little bit of a better space right now because we, we had quite a few lean use over here where when we were given more resources, we, we treated them with a lot of respect. We used them well. Like we're, we're aware of kind of what it was like to go without as opposed to, to just having a number of people in, in and around the pie all the time. Nick, is it there's
0: a lot of criticism that a lot of the members of the board they're not rugby people. Is is that one of the reasons why how that that came to these these high wages and this the nose in the trough, because they weren't they weren't rugby people. They they kind of saw it as a as more of a business and an opportunity for them to progress in a business with a higher wage?
3: Nick, Mick, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure of that. Um, just because you know you you see opportunities of get, getting different income levels and what have you it doesn't justify the necessity to bring on board additional people you should be looking to get out of your your current people and your current marketing or sales team you know to, to build more income and more revenue the, the sad truth of rugby and the sad truth of sport in general is that we haven't put the acorns away for winter. Um, there's no reserves. And so Rugby Australia is currently living off, I think what would be their participation right from last year's very successful um, Japanese Rugby World Cup. and then we got through that, and it was a fantastically hosted event. But we've never put money away. We've spent it. And, and, and even to think that, you know Israel for and that settlement, you, know, is being paid out over a term period. It just shows you the the fact that we don't have reserves within rugby and, and that we're now relying on, you know, this this hopeful world rugby low interest loan. Why would they look to to, to benefit Australia in front of any other nation? We just know that United States rugby went into administration. Um, or potentially going to the federal government. And we know that the federal government is not going to look after a sport. They're not going to set a precedent. They're trying to look after the nation. Mm. They're trying to look after families. There's no way that they will be supporting a sport. So, you know, how we got to this stage, um, you know, I, I, I really don't know. Um, and getting back to your question, which was, Nicky.
0: Michael, <laughs> I can't remember what my question was, but just on the, on the money... I read an article that um, so Augustin Pichot he said that World Rugby they will not bail out Sansa nations from this from this crisis. So and there was a figure there. They said um, All Blacks, Springboks, and Pumas would create a combined financial deficit of about seven hundred and ninety million dollars. And they said World Rugby just couldn't hope to cover that. So where where do we end up? where, where are we going to end up here?
3: Well, as I've said a number of times, I think it's unbankable. Um, You know, I've I've been in the financing game after 10 years in law for 25 years, 15 years for a a French investment bank and and 10 years, um, you know, in private equity. And so I I think I understand what's bankable. Rugby is not bankable. We don't have any any shorty of of any future income because we don't have a product, um, which is not Rugby Australia's fault. Um, But again, I come back to the fact we've got no reserves. but we have no certainty of any income from sponsors, from game day and, and from broadcasting. So when they eventually um, crystallise a, a liability in relation to Ruper and, and the ongoing um, costs of paying the players, uh, then the directors have to significantly sit down and, and think, are we a going concern? And if we're not, you've got corporations act liabilities um, and to call voluntary administration Now, I'm the last person that wants to put pressure on rugby to put in a voluntary administrator, um, to put in a liquidator of the game. Um, but who knows, maybe it opens up a couple of options. And you, you guys over there in the West have got some people that are interested in investing in rugby. Um, maybe it does open some interesting options to the way forward.
0: Because if, if they do bring in
3: a, a liquidator,
0: so like for the well,
3: amb- administrator, Mick, I said, an administrator. Okay.
0: So what, does that, what does that mean? What does that mean?
3: Well, that person would then, I think, go in and sit down and look at, at, at the liabilities. Uh, and so we're going to have a whole bunch of liabilities going forward and, and, and the income going forward. And so they will look to work a way forward to see how we pay out the, the creditors. Um, and are there any white knights out there that could potentially look to come into the game and and um, support the game? You know, as I think Alan Jones, the the you know, Sydney based media commentator, has said, it opens it up for a whole bunch of options. I mean, private equity investors coming in. I would like to think that most importantly, we keep the game absolutely community connected, and so that anyone who comes in doesn't come in with interests of, of benefiting. You know, from a profit perspective, um, you know looking to on sell something but looks to come in to invest, you know to keep it in in the current constitutional um, you know sort of grounds that we've got, and I think the constitution of rugby has to change. I actually had a chat with someone on the board of Rugby Australia today, someone very senior, and I said, We have to go down the New Zealand rugby approach, which they adopted when the game went professionally in 1996. We have to make sure that Rugby Australia um, actually does rule the game and that the franchises, you know, um, basically align to them in relation to everyone they employ in their support structures. Now, I know that didn't work for Western Australian rugby, but I can assure you in a reconstituted board, uh, it would work for Western Australia. How
0: did that suggestion go down?
3: It went down well,
0: and and how would that benefit Western Australia?
3: Uh, you would have representation as far as this is just NFJ's view. Yeah. Um, and and you would you would have a strong voice at the table. Um, you know, I th- I think we've we've understood that in the last two, three, four years we've we've somewhat blown our game up, and um, we need to to bring everyone onto the table. We need to, you know, cut a lot of the the slack that we've had in the game out, sadly, for some people. And and we need to just change the culture.
0: And, Mitch, what was that question you asked earlier about community it's to Nick? Yeah, I was just wondering, Nick, um, through your
1: time with New South Wales Rugby and obviously, um, you, you, you know, club rugby is very close to your heart um, as part of the game. So where do you see clubs playing a, a broader role in the future of rugby in Australia? And what, what could they do more of or less of? Or where
3: could they really come in and assist the game, do you think? Mitch, I think club rugby is a huge part of it. As I said, I haven't been involved in rugby um, for the last five years. But when Bill Pulver was trying to bring in the third tier of rugby, and he did, um, I had to go to the presence of, of most of just about every Sydney club rugby club which contributes 65% of all the professional players to Australian rugby. I had to go to those guys and say, this is what Bill Pulver wants. This is what Rugby Australia, Australian Rugby Union, as it was back then, wants. Guys, I know it's going to require a lot more of your volunteers' time. I know it's going to require a lot more of your time. I know we're going to have to cut into the, you know, the Premiership rugby, the shoot shield in Sydney. But back Bill, because he will get a better... Um, negotiation for the the broadcasting rights, and he did. He, he doubled the broadcasting rights because he included the third tier. Um, I said to the presidents, back Bill, because I have Bill's assurance that you guys will benefit from it. We each club used to get one hundred and ten thousand dollars in the old days, going back seven years, um, to support their clubs' funding of uh, producing these. 65, 70% of professional rugby players. Bill did double his broadcasting rights. Did the club see anything? They got the hole in the donut, Mitch. Yeah. And so that's the disappointment you get. But as you know, um, Rugby Australia has recently come back in. They're trying to renegotiate any broadcasting rights. They've tried to include the shoot shield again. Again, I haven't been privy to those discussions, but they understand the importance of club rugby. If we don't get club rugby right, um, we're a third tier sport. Yeah, and I think that's 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 what's going to underpin rugby's resurgence, if you
1: like, is by, and I and I've heard really good stories around club rugby around Brisbane and Sydney, really bringing the crowds back and people reconnecting with their community clubs, which is great. You know, um, the Western Australian community over here have got a really good um, club base, and I think that's where a lot of good people are still sitting, and I think we can't. Underestimate the amount of talent that's still out there for the game um, through the club ranks, and how we can use that competition to foster talent. Um, we seem to be just creating layers upon layers of pathway programs and academies, and um, yeah, trying to justify, justify money. And then we've got this fund, special fund for the you know the X Factor kid, and we're going to pay him thousands and thousands
3: of dollars. It's just money we don't have. Um, yeah. Mitch, Mitch, it's it's crazy. You know, you're speaking to a guy who's going on 58, but who didn't play first 15 for his school. But back in his day, when you were lucky enough to play for a, a great club and alongside some great people, if you really worked your ass off, was able to pull on the gold jersey and, and travel the world and get the passport to the world and, and beat out your anthem in the best stadiums of the world and 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 be in the right place at the right time to, you know, captain a team to win a World Cup. So, so mate, I go back to the days when you didn't have all those ridiculous, stupid, you know, you got to be identified at 16, 17 to get a break. I mean, I... I I would really streamline rugby. I, I would forget a whole bunch of Sansa systems. I would would go back to close closing the relationship with New Zealand. I, I would get greater connectivity with with the Premiership clubs. Um, let, let's make it simpler because that's where you know the rusted on rugby people. You know they love the game. They that's where they they get the enjoyment. And that's where you'll get the sponsorship support and that's where you get the broadcasting support going back. And just on that, Nick, where do you you see South African rugby
1: connected to Australian rugby and for the future? Because obviously I think we have closer ties in New Zealand than anyone, obviously. And and we've got this history there. And even if you go right back to, you know, the the emergence of super rugby in the amateur days, um, but South African rugby, that's, pretty much to find the ointment. They could go to the Northern hemisphere, like a couple of teams already have, and we could go it alone with New Zealand. What's your thoughts on that? Oh,
3: look, look again, Mitch. That's not my, where where my bread and butter is. That's not where I do my day thinking and what have you. But look, it it makes sense. I mean, time zones make sense. I've been to South Africa 150 times in my life, mainly on business. I'm involved in mining. and and it's a it's a great country going through some very very tough times. It's just been downgraded by Moody's, and I won't go there. But they should go on time zone. Um, you know, they're they're absolutely aligned to the United Kingdom and and Europe. Um, yeah, and we should more connect with with New Zealand. I always said when when the game went professional, and and I was living in France then, I just gone over to join the French investment banks, Societe Generale, took a young family. I always said that. We should have two tiers in in Super Rugby, um, which were the the major teams that we had. But I always thought that you can't leave the Minnow countries behind. You can't leave the Samoas, the Tongas, the Fijis, um, and and other countries behind, including provinces like Western Australia. Create a second tier. Um, You don't have to spend a lot of time on planes and what have you. Bring everyone in for a month. Have a promotion relegation that works so well you know, in, in British soccer, for example. Um, and, and sadly, I think we have left some of the Minnow nations behind. And, and there's an opportunity to work closer with them as well. And, and Japan, I think, is a major opportunity going forward too. I mean, they hosted a fantastic Rugby World Cup. They've got so many corporates that are prepared to pay Um, you know, for sponsorship and and understand it. And, um, you know, there's opportunities. But, yeah, I I agree with you. We we have to move on from from South Africa as much as, you know, I've enjoyed my relationship with that country. But they will benefit more um, from aligning themselves with, with the European time zone, particularly in relation to currency exchange.
1: And it certainly doesn't stop the test matches still going ahead in some way, shape or form. And it certainly doesn't stop the odd invitational match where you might end up with a Sharks versus a Waratahs or a, or a, a Lions versus a, a Western Force at some point in time in an invitational sense where it actually means something and actually builds a bit of, you know, interest for the world game.
3: Totally agree. And, and, and you know, put a cup up or something for it that makes relevance, that there's a meaning behind it. Um, you know, we have the Mandela Trophy. Um, there's a whole bunch of things, you know, for the 95 Rugby World Cup team um, that South Africa, you know, wonderfully won that that probably the best rugby World Cup of all time in those times. You know, four guys from that team have passed away. You know, there, there's opportunities to recognise those guys and 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 make something of that and make you know something meaningful to people, supporters, players. Um, yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of of ways to look at it.
0: Nick, where where does the Western Force and Western Australian rugby fit in your mind in this? Whole new world,
3: uh, Nick. I, I I can just say that that you you know your your state your your Perth has been has been quite amazing in relation to your passion for the game. Um, the only test I have been to with with my wife, we were privileged enough to come over to that uh, amazing test against the All Blacks. That's the only test I've watched live, as in being there in presence for the last four years. What a what a fantastic occasion that was! But the reason I raise it is because you guys turned up and you didn't dress in blue. You didn't protest. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you turned up in in green and gold, and it was fantastic for a state that's been shunned mm-hmm. by Rugby Australia. And and so, in a way, your you, 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 your people can be seen as the heart and soul of the game going forward. Um. And the preparedness to, you know, hopefully break you know break olive leaves and or whatever it is. Your olive leaf, you know, and, and come back to a, a sense of let's work together and how we can do that. And 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 we we do know that your state is, is doing extremely well and we've got ex, you know um we've got record iron ore exports. Um you know, going to Asia, um, which is thankfully keeping our economy somewhat on, on care and maintenance. Um, and so some people are doing well. And, and, and we need some people to come out of here and say, with goodwill that we're prepared to support. But we can only support if you've got the confidence that you've got a revised constitution, you've got the right people on board, you've got the connectivity, really importantly, to the international rugby world. Um, because I don't think we've had that. You can't have people running the game that are learning on the job, and sadly, that's what we've had in the last three years.
0: We hear so much over here about, you know, the Shoot Shield and Brisbane Club Rugby. How is Western Australia viewed by by rugby on the East Coast? Like from our point of view, we're always forgotten about.
3: Well, Mick, you, you've got to stand up and and you know put your best foot forward um, in relation to Perth and Western Australia. I mean, you know, I've I've just been involved in giving Wellborn 130 million US dollars to make an acquisition and what have you. And I know he was your first homegrown wallaby, but, and hopefully he thanks us for doing that. Um, yeah, giving him 130 million US dollars is not, you know, chicken feed. Um, so he made an acquisition of a little project over in West Africa. Um, but we did that very quickly. Now I want more wellborns. Okay. So where are you placed in producing more wellborns, Mick? And I know you are okay. You you went on to represent Australia, um, but you didn't pull on that gold jersey. So where are you guys placed in your systems of developing young players? I mean, do they disappear to Aussie rules because that's the big game over there? Um, are you bringing on any more Wallabies?
0: Well, I think I'll throw that to, to
1: Mitch and Heath because I know. Yeah, well, let's try to Heath. I think Mick, I've, I've done a bit of chat. Heath, Heath has got to working alongside a few young blokes in the program at the moment. Heath?
2: They're, they're definitely on the way. They're, they're not far off. Um, I think in, in more recent times, originally with the amalgamation of the force and then you know some players going down to other super teams, we've seen some guys step up to Wallaby level. Um, Richard Hardwick comes to mind first up. Uh, Jermaine and another young prop who developed and, and played his club rugby over here. Um, I think the next batch are on their way now. Like there was probably, uh, I wouldn't say a a, a lull in the production over the last few years, but there was just that little bit of uncertainty for a period where, you know, some guys decided to hang around, some younger guys decided to make a real go of it, and and they had opportunities elsewhere. So they've taken those. But coming into our our squad this year, I think uh, it's roughly a third of the guys are all have developed through. Not just the pathway, but club rugby as well over here. I mean, I, I agreed with you guys strongly before with our um, our need to kind of get away from get away from the academy system or really strong academy system. Um, you know, nowadays it does still feel like if 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 you're not targeted or ID'd at 15, 16, then you might as well give up um, because I mean it hits home for me. I didn't get my first first professional rugby game of rugby till I was 24 years old. So I was someone who came through, was able to, you know, play a bit of state rep and a bit of schoolboy stuff and things like that. But, um, you know, the next the next few years, I yeah just kind of disappeared off the radar a little bit. But I was fortunate enough to to kind of realise where I wanted to get to and and like what you touched on, Nick, being able to play play the good clubs with your mates and really enjoy it brings the best out of yourself individually as well. And it it managed to get me over there. Um, and it's managed to keep me in the game for a little bit longer. But with the uh, going back to the, the question with the young guys coming through, I think we're, we're not too far off seeing that next batch of wallabies. Um, obviously, with all the uncertainty going on in the world right now, but especially in our sport in Australia, we're not sure where we'll come out the other side of it. But uh, I think there's probably five or six guys that we have who are being developed or who have come through our pathway or are in that. Um, in that little under-20s, under-20s schedule who are training with us full-time at the force, So I think if everything, everything goes their way, if they keep working the way they're going, they'll be, they'll be wearing gold jerseys in the next five or
0: six years. Because, Nick, there was, a, there was a time there, it was a couple of years ago, and there were more West Australian rugby players who had brought, developed here, more Western Australians in the, in the Wallaby squad than there were Western Australians in the Australian cricket squad. So there, it, it has been, there are mm-hmm. players here that are good. You know, Even like Mitch's young fella, um, Jack, he learned all his <laughs> junior rugby and played all his grade rugby here in Perth, but he's, he's gone across to the Reds because... Um, and Mitch, I, 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 I guess when the force got kicked out of Super Rugby, that, that sort of seemed that was the pathway that these kids had to leave the state again, which is what John Wellboard had to do a long time ago, whereas it would be great if, if players in WA could stay in WA to play for the Wallabies, have Lord John Wilbons, without having to go away. Like Dane hale petty Cole yeah. Godwin, young kids that, that went on to to play from Perth to play for the Wallabies.
3: So, so, Mick, one of the things that he said was that you know there were a lot of... Well, there were some people that were leaving the system and, and moving on to other opportunities. Uh, I'd like to explore that. The second thing I'd like to ask is, you know, since the force were disgracefully removed from the system. Has that impacted on, on community rugby over there? I, I can imagine that a bunch of rusted-on rugby people have thought, bugger this, I, I'm over it. Um, but but maybe I ask you, Heath, you, you, you mentioned a whole... Well, some people are just going on to other opportunities and then maybe if I come back to, to Mitch... Um, you know, have there been rusted on people that, that are no longer interested or are, are there still are the clubs going well? Are the clubs thriving over there? And and what is what, what what is needed from a Western Australian perspective to to get people back engaged?
2: With with me answering your question first, Nick, it was yeah, so in that period, um when we talk about like uh the kids in academies and maybe even Mitch could have some insight as well with, with his son coming through. A lot of the kids when they get to a certain age you've, if they haven't really cracked it, a lot of them kind of end up out of their game whether or not they're kind of um, put on, not necessarily, for want of a better term put on a scrap heap or they end up searching searching for that other, uh, another opportunity elsewhere. So we kind of year there was a bit,
3: I got four kids, they range from 29 to 19. Um, That is a big problem, not just in rugby, but across the board, they can get so distracted. Mm. And, And I really despair that youngsters will never actually reach their potential. And I feel so lucky that because of circumstance and because of a bit of discipline, because of the preparedness to the blood, sweat and tears, I was able to squeeze the lemon and get the drops out. It doesn't mean I've done that in life, but I got that in rugby. Okay. And, yeah. and we have to in rugby work out how we get the culture back to encourage these kids to not die wondering how good they can be. Well, and, and that's my hang around as well. That. that is my biggest issue. Guys. Fight for it, even if you don't think you're good enough, particularly in Western Australia where you know there's huge hurdles. Fight for it, you know, overcome. How do we how do we mentor these kids to not die wondering about achieving their potential?
1: One of the big things is is making sure we've got good, valuable competitions for these, you know, players to play in. And it's got to they've not only got to go out and enjoy their, their rugby on a Saturday afternoon or whenever they play, but it's got to be a reasonable standard where they can walk off the field and say, "Geez, that was a good game," and "Geez, that really pushed me hard today," and and have that self satisfaction that they're actually being pushed on the field. I mean, the Perth Club Rugby's you know it's 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 surviving. It's definitely had a drop in player numbers. It's definitely definitely had a drop in standard since the Western Force um, exited Super Rugby. Um, but it comes and goes with batches of players, and and if players can see a viable pathway where they know that if they play good first grade club rugby, they can move to the next stage, they'll stick it out. And there's a number of examples of that over in the West where they'll do that. Um, and there's a lot of examples in Sydney, I'm sure, as well. But you've got to have that competition of a high standard. It's, that goes right through to good standard refereeing, good standard of coaching. You know, a, you know, like any player, they want to have good coaching because they feel that they can get something out of it and then they can execute it on, this, on a game.
3: But Mitch, Mitch yeah, let, let, me tell you, let me tell you, my, my pathway to the Wallabies, it was a bit bizarre. Didn't play first 15 in school, never played under 21s in New South Wales or Australia. Was playing second division for Sydney University in 1983. Next year I'm playing for Australia. Okay, and the reason I did that was one, because I worked my ass off very, very quickly, but secondly, because I had people around me like Michael Hawker and David Brockoff and other people saying, you've got to look at this young kid. You've got to look at him. You've got to pick him, you know, to select us and what have you. And remember, these are the amateur days where people yeah. listen. We didn't have the pathways and what have you. So does a young kid in Western Australia have any confidence that anyone's looking at him?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, Really? I,
3: well, why is that?
1: Well, yeah, I think with the way they've set up the systems and the coach networks, you know they do talk regularly about who's playing well and who, who isn't. So who's
3: looking at a Western Australian 17-year-old kid?
1: Uh, well, that'd be Steve Anderson from, who runs the academy, yeah, no, yeah. Who reports through the, the, the ARU. Um, the Western Force coaches I know have got their eyes on a number of kids in the local competition. I use for an example, an Alex Masabaka, who plays down in Associates, a good little number eight, uh, played for the Australian under 18s this year. Was okay. um, given the opportunities and what have you, and he's he's a real talent for the future. But and he's he's on the you know of one of the development programs at the moment. But he's already playing first grade rugby down at Soaks and doing really we've, well. We brought him in to spend a
2: bit of time with us as well. Yeah, good young I mean, kid. I a playing,
3: guys, I was I was playing I was playing three years of grade at Sydney Uni before I got selected. So playing yeah. first grades is not not a big deal. I just want to make sure these kids know that someone's looking at them and and they actually have potential to go higher um yeah and it's
2: and
1: i think to your point nick it's about then sticking it out if it doesn't happen in the first 12 first year agreed
3: and that's where young kids mitch get get frustrated and because of you know i was never online i never i still am not online and all that stuff but they get distracted by other busyness in life and that's the biggest problem we face but what i want young kids to experience is is as I said squeezing the lemon and getting all the drops out. I do not want young kids whether it's in music drama um, their academia their their work life I, I'd want them doing what good they can be
1: yeah absolutely and I guess that's you know one of my little soapbox things is, that I harp on about is the role of sports scientists these days and getting Keep on ruling guys out of playing rugby. You know, you just see these guys. Oh, you can only play twenty minutes this week. You can only play forty minutes this week. You can only run this much or that much. I think you know, just the role of sports scientists. Yes, I agree. There needs to be there, but the influence they had of have, have on players playing, I think, is one of the the unfortunate things in the game at the moment. And I know Heath, you might have a different view on that because you're a current player. But certainly from my observations, their influence is far too great.
2: Uh no, I I, I agree <laughs> with you to some extent. <laughs> it's probably the older I get, the happier I've been to just get the uh, tap for twenty minutes. <laughs> but I think I think, and that's I think. That's hey, but Heathie, to, uh, Heathie can I good. ask you? Yeah.
3: Would our game not be better, like in the days when I played it? Like everyone's talking about, we don't get enough space. We don't get enough in our open play. It's too much push and drive, and 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 what have you. Would it? Would it? You you won't have given this any thought, so let me just put it on you. I reckon (laughs) the game was much better when I played it because I could not be replaced unless I had a medically um, confirmed injury. So it's an 80-minute game. It's a game of attrition. You could run people round. You could then create space out wide. Um, Don't you think we'd have a better game if we didn't have to replay people after 50 minutes?
2: It depends if you want to see... Big blokes like me plotting rounders with our knuckles. I don't care. Like, we, we want athletes,
3: mate. We want athletes.
2: <laughs> but I think that's where the I think that's where the problem is as well. You like with everyone being a lot, or you know, I'll tread carefully here. With but with people being a little bit more athletic nowadays, spending a bit more time in the gym. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I don't know if it's always the he, best he, thing he, for our skills. He, he never, I never went
3: gym in my life. It's about I being. I don't
2: believe athletes. you. I don't believe you looking you <laughs> down that singlet. <laughs> 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 but I think I think the I'm thing is
3: nowadays, my VB, your
2: front rowers, your, your second rowers, you're doing some girls. Your front rowers, your second rowers can play eighty minutes nowadays. And and manage quite why don't,
3: that they? Quite why don't they? Why don't they play eighty minutes? Why do we need to have, you know, people brought on with thirty minutes to go? If everyone wants a, a more open and spacious game, why don't we just have fifteen against fifteen?
0: Yeah, I I Mate, I agree whole, 100% with that, Nick. I've, I find that, you know, you work hard. You, if, you wanna, if you know you're playing 80 minutes, you get yourself fit enough to play 80 minutes. So you're not, you're not plodding around. You can actually play the 80 minutes and some will get tired and gaps will, will come. So I'm, I agree. And I want to come back to one thing about these kids leaving. Do you think that the Wallaby jersey has lost the, the aura that it had when I was a kid growing up? I was saying to my wife, I used to play fourth grade and I would not go skiing on a weekend in winter because I didn't want to lose my fourth grade spot because I thought if I get dropped to fifth grade, that's a long way from first grade, a long way from New South Wales, long way from the Wallabies. Whereas these kids, they don't get a super contract by 20. They go to Japan or France to try and hoover up some money. So have we got to make that Wallaby jersey, make these kids want to fight for that jersey as opposed to fight just for the best bit of coin they're going to get?
3: Mick, Mick, I, I sort of alluded to, I think in our discussion, that culture has to change. Um, if if I was running Rugby Australia, um, and someone didn't want to accept what I thought was a reasonable offer, and a very good offer, um, to be a professional rugby player in Australia, to pull on that jersey, then I would say, if you want to go to Japan or Europe, um, that's fine, except, you know, go away. I, I need people who are totally committed to, to pulling on that jersey and the pride of doing that. Um, and I would also look to bring in incentivized contracts. I think we need that. You know, uh, I'm sick and tired of what I perceive from a distance, people not hurting about losing, um, because they know the money's gonna roll into the account. Um yep. and, and so they can they can you know continue doing that. I, 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 I wanna see some hurt, um, some real hurt from from losing. Um and I'm not saying that, that some of the guys don't really, it doesn't get them in the solar plexus. But I think there needs to be some cultural change. And, and that might take a couple of years. You know, we're starting from a pretty low base. It might take a couple of years. and I think we need some real leaders within the team. Um, but you'll find them. And, and I did, again, I said to you guys, this, I had a with one of the, um, the board members of Rugby Australia today and And he was very disappointed about how difficult it was to negotiate with some of the leading Australian rugby players um, on on coming to terms and, and and that disappointed me that you know the whole country's going through really tough issues. We all talk about we're all in this together, and yet I gather some leading older players are playing hardball in their negotiations with Rugby Australia. Not that Rugby Australia have got a lot of mileage to play with. You know, they've you know, just mismanaged our funds. So we've got bugger all money to manage. But, you know, to think that there's players out there for a period of maybe six months that aren't prepared to sacrifice for the good of the game, its bloody disappointing. Because
0: that, you know, that as a, as a fan, that's the sort of behaviour that, that drives people away from the game with all these prolonged negotiations with these players' salary, like
3: it puts people off. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, you know, when, when everyone's going through hardship, when everyone's going through difficulty, um, and, and people who are on extremely big salaries, um, and a lot of people would think for bugger all services, <laughs> particularly the way we've played in the last couple of years, um, you know, what are you guys holding out for? Yeah, it's yeah.
1: I understand that you know ruper has got a job to do, but and there's 192 odd professional players scattered around the country and whatever. You, but you know, really common sense has got to prevail here. This is this is for the future of the game, and it shouldn't be that complicated to say, you know, what I'll take X amount of pay cut because this is what I can work with. This is what's fair and reasonable. You know, you've got players on multi hundreds of thousands of dollars deals and you know, we all know we can live off a pretty modest salary and get by. And we're not going to an office. We're not working twelve-hour days. These blokes, these blokes are doing, you know, push-ups and chin-ups at home and doing their exercises and doing what have you and doing their study and doing whatever they need to do. But it's not worth the money they're getting paid for on a on a monthly basis at the moment. Um, so that I think they just need to step up and play their role and get it sorted as far as this um, salary sacrifice goes and then that money can be put back into the game for the future
0: and on, on some on some brighter notes um, there was an article in the West Australian today about a possible domestic tournament getting underway in less than two months
2: Tess what have you
0: been told about that
2: the first I heard about it was when my missus sent it to me so
0: <laughs> right
2: no not too much I mean Nick probably knows more of. his catching up with Rugby Australia officials. So I know that what they're looking at doing is obviously starting a competition as quickly as possible. Um, what that looks like when that starts is still, you know, a little bit of a mystery. Obviously, there'll be they're looking at involving the uh, the four Super Teams in our and our Western Force team as well. Um, there's obviously there's been some other teams mooted past that, but whether or not um, whether or not any of those teams are concrete or not, or who is actually seriously being considered through Pacific nations, through Japan as well? That's still uh, still a bit of a mystery to me as well. Nick, do you know anything about that that team, that
0: competition starting in a couple of months? It was reported in today.
3: No, I, I don't know anything, Nick. But um, you know, who'd know with some of those um, innovators and entrepreneurs in your state? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised of anything. And there was a in the same um,
0: article today. There was talk about the having a, a, a competition here for the, the whole rugby championships where they bring the All Blacks, Springboks and Argentina to Perth for six weeks to to play at this tournament. Do you think... It, is that likely to happen? And do you agree with that? Do you think that's a good idea? Is that a question to me, sir? Me? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: Well, why not? I mean, I I think anything to bring content back, um, because at the moment, the biggest problem rugby Australia has got is they've got no content. They've got no surety of... Income, therefore, from Fox. Um, that's why they're unbankable, and and again, they can't you know put their hand out to the sponsors. So, just like Rugby League is doing, just like AFL is doing, um, we need to be looking at at something, a plan, a plan, and 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 you've got to be starting to think about it. And it's going to change daily, and it's going to change weekly. And we all know that. I mean, our lives are doing that at the moment. we we're, we're, we're really living in unprecedented times, but you gotta play into things. So I would have no problem and I would hope that no player would have any problem with you know setting up camp in Perth, you know, and in and, and Western Australia and, and looking to I mean you've got the most magnificent stadium there. Um, why wouldn't you host all those games from there. It'd be fantastic. So why not get on the front foot? I mean, what we need in these difficult times is entrepreneurs. We need people with vision and we need people to, you know, not look backwards, um, albeit I think RA at the moment of looking backwards to their mistakes, but look forwards to the, the vision, the opportunity, and and look at just like Rugby League and Peter Valandis is doing so well over here in Sydney, as to how we do restart, um, you know, and and not get, you know, deal with the changes that are happening daily, but look at a plan and why not Western Australia? I mean, you guys deserve a payback.
0: One one thing just on that, the whole innovation and entrepreneurs, you've got a guy like Andrew Forrest who he's got the, he's got the ideas, he's got the money to back it up. Would you like him would you like to see him involved in Rugby Australia or do you like him actually being outside of that little bubble?
3: Look, probably outside at the moment. But look, I've known Andrew for over you know, two decades. Um, you know, we know each other well through the mining industry um, and also other things we've been involved in. But, but look, you need people like that. I mean, anyone who's passionate about the game, and Andrew said he has and he's backed you guys in, in Western Australian rugby um, yeah, unbelievably and and good on him. Um, but you need people like that in inside the square. And and I think he was really poorly dealt with um, by Rugby Australia. You know that meeting in Adelaide. I think you know he was dismissed um, his offer. And you know if if I had anything to do with Rugby Australia going forward, I mean I'd be certainly handing out that olive branch to to Andrew to come on board and and use not not his money so much, but his his skill, his, his connectivity to Asia, I think that's the important thing. He's got an amazing connection with Asia because of what he's done with commodities and um, he understands commercial opportunities and he understands broadcasting and that's number of eyes on sets and, and he understands Asia and why wouldn't you involve him?
0: So there are some green shoots in rugby in, the country, in Australia,
2: you think?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, we're going through a very difficult period in the in the you know globally. Um, I don't see a lot of green shoots at the moment. Um, but can, can the game survive in Australia? You might need a white knight. I, that's all I'd say. You might need a white knight, and you're not going to get that from government funding because of their need to focus on families through this period. Um, you're not going to get it probably. You're not going to get it from corporates, so you probably need a philanthropist. Whether Rug, world rugby will come on board, as we've we've heard about, I I doubt because how can they prioritise Australia in front of it, any other country that needs money? Um, so you probably need a white knight. So we come back to someone like Forrest. Um, you know, can they fund it? But at the same time, you want traditional community rugby to put together a proper constitution that gives us a structure like New Zealand has, um, where we absolutely cut to the bone the costs of the game and change our culture of the game so we have players that want to pull on that jersey. Mm. Uh, if, If that's the summary I'd offer, that's the summary I offer.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, Nick, it'd be great to sit here for another couple of hours and talk rugby, but we will wrap it up. So, mate, thank you very much. We do appreciate your time. It is always good to talk to you. And I know you said you haven't been involved in rugby for a long time, but you're a key part of Australian rugby and club rugby for a long time. And it's, um, mate, we do appreciate your time tonight.
3: Pleasure, guys. Nice to see Mitch and Heath as well. And um, good luck, guys, over there. Um, We're going through tough times. And, Mick, you're a good man. And, Love speaking to you, and, and how's your club going, Uni of WA? Yeah, yes, it's good. So you know We've been one of the
0: clubs that's supplied some good players. Young, um, the flanker, Mitch, what's his name? It's Carlo. Um, Zan- Carlo. Who's um, gone across to the Waratahs. So, Uni's, uni's provided some, some good players for a long time, and I think that'll, mm. that'll continue. It's a good, solid... You know, the university clubs, Nick, they're, um, they're very social. Rugby mm. kind of comes second, but it seems
3: to attract some good players. You know, one other thing just quickly, guys, as, as I get out of here, one of the things that I thought about was, was that, you know, our clubs much so in, in supporting, funding, bringing up these young guys that then go on potentially to super rugby. Um, I think a really simple structure on, on how clubs can be rewarded would be that if, if you have one of your players come through your club and get contracted by a super club, you get $20,000. Yeah, if that player goes on to play 25 games for that super club, you get another 10,000. If he goes on to play 50 games, you get another 10,000. Just really simple ways to remunerate clubs for the blood, sweat, and tears they yeah. put into developing players. It's not hard, it's really simple. So, I'll cut out on that, Mick, with that suggestion. And, um, guys, all the best through these tough times. Stay strong. Stay resilient, stay safe, and um, let's get the rusted-on, former rusted-on, you know, rugby players <laughs> that we've lost back on board. Good on you, Nick. Thanks very much. Cheers,
0: Thanks, Nick. Okay. So Nick Fire Jones, there, the former Wallaby captain, and,
1: and he makes a lot of sense, doesn't he? Yeah, it's great just to listen to him and just get his views on the game, Nick. And I know, you know, there's there's so many good minds um, out there in the the rugby alumni. Um, right around the country. So, you know, th- these guys have got a lot to offer. I mean, they've got so much knowledge and business experience and just passion for the game still. And you can just hear it in Nick's voice that his passion's still there. So, wonderful just to sit and listen to his views on the game and, and just to um, to see where, where his mind's at with how he can support it going forward.
0: I really like that idea of the money, almost like the transfer fee that the English clubs have. If you've got a young kid that does get picked up,
2: that the clubs get rewarded from that, I think it's a fantastic idea. I think as well that en- that encourages clubs to be more professional as well. Like it makes them want to start producing more players. It puts a little bit more onus on the clubs to to producing those top level players, to keeping guys playing at their club for longer as well. And it gives them that incentive. I do think any money that goes into club rugby is um, is good.
1: Yeah, and there might might be a few hoops that the club's got to jump through to to get that money, like you know, making sure that they're running themselves well and doing the right thing financial wise and development wise, and make sure they've got juniors and things like that to get that money. But you know, that's that's just ticking the box and making sure they're doing the right thing by the game, sort of thing. So I think there's a lot of merit in that. There's there's a lot of merit in you know the white knight theory with uh, you know we've seen Twiggy this week, put some money up for the Telethon Kids Institute to do some research for the vaccine for COVID, which is fantastic see. He brought all that um, equipment for the the health workers out there the other week. You know, the, he's just just steps up to the plate when he's needed, and unashamedly so. And you know, yeah, hopefully, there's a few more philanthropic people out there in the rugby community that might um, might get on board if the structure's right. And I don't think they're keen to part with their cash while ever the games in. The sort of the die straights yeah. that it's currently at.
0: Yeah, that's the problem. We don't really have a product that people are prepared to get behind, unless John Wellborn takes some of that 130 million. Obviously, he bought that mine in the Congo. <laughs> he's a very man. He's Dick Far Jones. Look, last question before we wrap it up, fellas. One of the headlines I saw was Quade Cooper wanted to go and have a stint in the NRL. How would you, <laughs> how's Quade going to go in rugby league? Oh, what well, as a cheerleader? <laughs> no, he wants to have a run. <laughs> <laughs> they got they're looking for some short term contracts with NRL and he's put his hand up and said he reckon it'd be a good number no. stick. Oh, good stuff. No, I
1: reckon he should do something. I mean he, he's such you have a look at the flick passes he's doing on YouTube. He's <laughs> definitely got a bit of spare time on his hand. Um you know, like you just quite quite was a really talented rugby player but you know he's just if he wants to go try other things and you know go knock yourself out. Um, and I think that goes back to Nick's point. Yeah. Around blokes wanting to play for Australia and actually, you know what, I wanna be a well, and I, mean, I wanna be part of the team and I wanna play for a long time. Keith yeah. over you.
2: All right, can you go? Imagine having I know, it wouldn't be it's a bit of a nightmare for me thinking about Quaidie um having an extra ten meters of space on me on a field. <laughs> so maybe I don't know if that talks more about his ability or my inability to be a rugby league <laughs> player. <laughs>
0: I'd like to to see him in attack, but a few of the leagueies were coming out saying they would just run at him all day. They would just absolutely love to just keep running at Quade Cooper. Some of the Burgess boys said that'd be their job. Yeah, but they
2: all, don't they? they, All the league guys, all the backs, those sevens and sixes, the halfbacks and fly halves, they have their little spotters inside them anyway. I mean, Tony Carroll sat inside Darren Lockyer for about eight years and just made all of his tackles for him. So, (laughs) I'm sure they could just find someone like that and then keep Quade fresh for attack.
0: Yeah, that'd be good to see. All right, well, Mitch, um, mate, that was good. that was good tonight. I think Nick's um, it was great having a chat to him. It's a bit of, we went a bit longer, but um, I think all of it very interesting. So mate yeah. your time, and Heath, always good to you. Good to talk to you, and hopefully by next week, maybe you might have been actually given some information about this competition you're playing in.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, let, look, let's That's hope right. it comes to fruition because it, it would be great to see a competition with those five domestic teams in Australia. I think that would satisfy a lot of people. It'd be great.
1: Yeah, it'd be a good start. It'd be a good starting point.
0: Well, that wraps up episode five of the Rugby Wrap. Any feedback, comments, ideas, or guests you'd like to hear from, you can contact us via Twitter at rugby underscore wrap. That's at rugby underscore wrap. And also at the Rugby Wrap on Facebook. So, Mitch, again, thanks for your time. Tess, I'll let you get back to your Easter eggs. And we'll catch everyone next week on the Rugby Wrap.